You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Where do you find peace during a time that is anything but peaceful? Our text this afternoon is going to address these questions for us and do so in a way that is simple, but I don't believe is overly simplistic. So let's pick up again where we left off last week, these verses we just looked at together, beginning in verse four. Paul returns in verse four to a key theme that he's come back to over and over again in this letter to the church at Philippi. In verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. We may mention that 18 times in the 105 verses that make up this letter to the church at Philippi, Paul repeats this theme, calling them to joy, to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Again, he's not just calling them to rejoice or have joy, but to rejoice in the Lord, he says. This means that if you are finding joy in your circumstances, your joy will be fleeting because your circumstances will change. But if you find your ultimate joy in Jesus, then nothing, no one, no circumstance can ever take that away from you. You know why? because Jesus never changes. His promises to you never change. If you find your joy in your circumstances, your joy will be fleeting. But if you find your joy in Jesus, it can be lasting, even eternal. When does Paul say to rejoice? Did you catch that? Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul doesn't mean that we need to be skipping around with smiles in our faces all the time, right? But what he does mean is that you can drink deeply of joy in Jesus, even in the midst of sorrow. Can make the sweet time sweeter, but even when you're in the midst of sorrow and loss, Paul says that Christians are those who grieve. We do grieve, we do weep but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 about himself that I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You can have joy in Jesus even as tears of sadness are streaming down your face. Because again, Jesus doesn't change. His promises to you never change. Paul has already shown this church in Philippi how to have joy in Jesus, even in the midst of hardship. Remember back to Acts 16. Acts 16 is where the church in Philippi starts. Paul goes there, preaches the gospel. Lydia, this wealthy Asian woman, comes to faith in Jesus. Then the next story that is recorded for us by Luke in Acts 16 is that Paul is used to free this demon-possessed slave girl. He frees her casts out this demon. Her master is upset because he can't explore her for his own gain anymore. So he has Paul and Silas beaten and thrown in prison, beaten with many blows, 
Luke records for us. Paul and Silas are bleeding in a Philippian prison. Remember what they do in Acts 16? They pray and they sing. Sing to the Lord. They have joy in Jesus that transcends their circumstances. And as a side, uh, joy in Jesus doesn't mean you don't pursue justice. You know what happens? They find out Paul's a Roman citizen. They come to Paul. They try to sweep this under the rug. And Paul said, no, you guys aren't sweeping this under the rug. Again, joy in Jesus doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice, but it does mean that even if you don't get justice, you can have joy that transcends whatever your circumstances are. And Paul is back in prison again, writing this letter to the church at Philippi, and he's calling them once again to rejoice in the Lord. You can find joy in Jesus because his promises to you are just as true on your good days as they are on your bad days. Actually, I think we may have biblical warrant to say Jesus actually moves closer to us in our times of sorrow and longing and lamenting, even on our bad days. He's even more near to us as his people. Christians will be able to appreciate the glory of Jesus' coming kingdom all the more because of the brokenness we experience in this life. We all know this. We can appreciate love all the more when we've experienced hate. We can appreciate being whole all the more when we have been hurt. We can appreciate peace all the more when we've experienced pain. And for all who are united to Jesus through faith, your groaning will one day turn into glory. This is the promise of the scriptures for all of us who are in Christ. So the first command here, that he repeats twice, is to rejoice in the Lord. The second command is found in verse five. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So question for you, do you think we live in a time that's characterized by reasonableness? I think we probably would all give a resounding no to that, right? Again, think about our political landscape right now. No matter what side you may come down politically, we probably can all say people are not very reasonable these days. And there's been people in my life that I thought they were pretty reasonable people and then I saw what they post online Maybe think of the Proverbs where, again, the Proverbs say some people seem wise until they open their mouths. Some people seem wise so they get behind a keyboard, right? And we see what's coming out. Reasonableness is not what marks our time, our culture. But this word here for reasonableness is actually difficult to translate. Some of your translation may have uh, some type of gentleness or a spirit of gentleness, maybe what it says. That's a good translation, 1 Timothy 3, 3. The qualifications for elders, we're in the process of nominating and bringing elder, deacon, candidates before you guys from our church. One of the qualifications for elders, 1 Timothy 3, 3, is that they are not violent but gentle. This word for gentle is the same word that's used here, translated reasonableness. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says that this word means the opposite of being contentious or self-seeking. So again, one of the reasons why we go through this process of bringing leaders before you that you nominate, that we vet, that have proven themselves faithful is it is important as a church of who our leaders are. 
It's also important for us just as a people who our leaders are out in the world. Because the truth is we have a way of becoming like our leaders. Again, as the political rhetoric has gotten uglier and uglier the last few years, I've seen, again, even many professing Christians, the way they talk to one another, again, in person, but especially online, has grown less and less reasonable and gentle. Part of our witness to the world is how we engage other people, not only with the gospel, but about everything. Paul says, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. And then Paul says something interesting to end of verse five. Do you notice that? The Lord is at hand. Do you know what that means? Commentators aren't really sure either. They debate it a lot. Some think that saying that Christians should just live with the anticipation of the Lord's coming, which is true if you read the New Testament. Others think this is just about the Lord's presence with his people right now. Again, I'm I'm not really sure after studying this text exactly what Paul's getting at here, but either way it's true that Christians should live every day in light of the final day and we should always be mindful of the Lord's presence. But in light of the Lord being at hand, Paul gives another clear command in verse six. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I don't think it should surprise us that right after Paul calls us to rejoice in the Lord, he brings up anxiety. What is one of the things that constantly robs us as Christians of joy in Jesus? Anxiety, right? Anxiety is a joy killer. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. So when we have anxiety that we're carrying around, it's like putting in big heavy rocks in a backpack and carrying those things around with us all the time. It weighs us down and we have plenty of things weighing us down and making us anxious these days, right? Already mentioned some of those pandemic political process that we're in right now. Someone mentioned our sermon writing this week, people pleasing, constantly trying to please other people can fill our lives with anxiety, right? When we think about finances, I know many people have lost their jobs during this time. You think about your finances, your family's finances. Think about just failure. Think about your future. These things can cause so much anxiety in us. And hear me, I don't want you to feel shame about feeling anxious. I don't think the Lord wants you to feel shame either. The Bible assumes that you are going to struggle with anxiety in a broken world. Again, even as a Christian. But the question for all of us is where are you going to turn when you get anxious? One of the problems with anxiety is it often makes us turn to things that are harmful for us. Turns to substances that we abuse to try to remove the anxiety. Turn to pornography. Turn to unhelpful, unhealthy relationships. A Christian must learn to turn elsewhere when we're anxious. John Ortberg says that anxiety should function as an alarm clock. Alarm clocks are supposed to be there to help wake us up in a moment, right? 
This is what they're supposed to do, all right? The, the snooze button is the best and worst invention of all time. Alarm clocks are supposed to help us wake up. An alarm is there to tell us that there is something, a real threat that we need to wake up to right now. But there's a difference between alarm and anxiety, right? Anxiety is us worrying about perceived threats that aren't yet there before us. There's a difference. Difference we need to be aware of. Maybe an illustration would be helpful. If you're walking through the woods and you encounter a bear, an alarm clock should be going off within you, right? There's a real threat that's there before you. Something really happens in your body that can help you run faster and jump higher and stay alive. This is the way that God has designed our bodies in good ways. But if you are walking through the woods and there is no bear, there is no threat, then it should be a pretty peaceful thing, right? There shouldn't be alarm clocks going off from within. We shouldn't be anxious. But there are some, even in those circumstances, that have alarm clocks going off all the time. And that's an exhausting way to live, isn't it? That would drive anyone crazy if you have an alarm clock that's going off all the time, even in a situation that should be peaceful and not anxiety-inducing. And I know that some of you have anxiety from trauma in the past. Again, you haven't really encountered a bear in the woods, but you've had something traumatic happen. And things, again, that should be peaceful are not for you. And I lament that with you. And know that that's not the way it's ultimately supposed to be. Our past trauma, kind of like your Enneagram number, isn't ever an excuse for sin, but it does make our struggle with sin all the more understandable, doesn't it? Again, I don't want you to wallow in shame over your struggle with anxiety. I want for you what I believe Jesus wants for you. I believe Paul is calling you to, to let your anxiety serve like an alarm clock that reminds you that you need Jesus and you need to pray to him. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, to cast all of your cares, to cast all of your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Again, Peter assumes that Christians are gonna be anxious about things and he tells us to throw these things at Jesus. These things are too heavy for us to carry ourselves. Throw them to Jesus. He can carry them. He can carry you. Reading through, I think I've mentioned to you a few times now, work through an incredible book called Gentle and Lowly. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And it's based on Matthew chapter 11. It's the only place in the gospel where Jesus tells us what his heart is like. And he says his heart is gentle and lowly. And there he gives an invitation to all who are weary and heavy laden to come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Jesus, our Savior, our sympathetic Savior, he moves towards us and not away from us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our anxiety, and even in our sin. If you belong to him, you can come to him. I think it's important for us to know that mental health disorders are real. 
but so are the promises of God. And God promises to meet us with his promises wherever you are. Jesus can meet you there. We as Christians are free to think about things holistically. God has made us holistic beings. But don't make turning to the Lord in prayer your last option. Make it your first. Go to him first and foremost. Medicine can be helpful. A massage can be helpful. Changing your diet, exercise, counseling, therapy, these things can be so helpful. But these things are never the only answer or the ultimate answer. The only way to have lasting peace that the scriptures promise is to know the Prince of Peace, to come to Jesus, to look to him in faith. Tony Morita has a really helpful commentary on Philippians that I've been working through, is preaching through, and he has a lot of helpful things to say about anxiety this week. One of the things he said about anxiety, he says, anxiety functions the way that false prophets function in the scriptures. Because anxiety will lie to you about your future. It will tell you all kinds of things with all kinds of authority about what your future is going to look like that are lies. But false prophets will also lie to you about who God is. Will tell you you can't trust him. He's not really good. He's withholding something good from you. But it's just we cannot believe these lies. We can't trust our fickle feelings and anxieties, but we can trust in Jesus, again, who never changes. Remember last year we went through the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus had a lot to say about anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. Remember where he told us to look? Don't look inward. He said to look out, to look at the birds of the air. He says, your Father in heaven feeds them to look at the flowers of the field. Your Father in heaven clothes them. He says, are you not of more value than they? You're more valuable than your pets and your plants because you're made in the image of God. Again, the Lord cares for you. He loves you. If you belong to Jesus, he loves you as the Father loves the Son perfectly. He cares for you. You can trust him. Brian Loretz says, you can't avoid the presence of anxiety in this life, but you can't avoid the prison of anxiety. You can't avoid the presence of it, but you can't avoid the prison of anxiety. What my dad told me about lust, I think also functions with anxiety, with worry, but as you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep a bird from building a nest in your hair. Again, it's not about whether you're going to have anxious feelings or not, but where do you turn in these moments? What do you do in these moments? We should let our worry lead us to worship. We should let our trouble lead us to trust in Jesus all the more. Paul gives us a strong weapon for combating anxiety in the rest of verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Again, let your anxiety be an alarm clock to remind you to pray and to cast and to throw all of your anxieties and cares to Jesus. Again, remember, we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing no matter what our circumstances are because of what we've been given in Christ. Because Jesus, our great God and Savior, never changes. His promises to us never change. They were all yes and amen to us. So the application for us, remembering these things, is that we are to be anxious about nothing but to pray about everything. To be anxious about nothing, Paul says, but to pray about everything. As the old hymn that I'm sure many of you are familiar with that grew up around the church, oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I wish I was Demetrius and could sing it to you. I can't, so I'm just going to quote it to you tonight. (laughs) What a friend we have in Jesus. He desires for you to come to him, desires for you to bring all of your cares, all of your anxieties to him because he cares for you. But hear me, when you are anxious, It's not a time for general prayers for God to bless the world or even to bless you. It's time for you to be very specific in your prayers, for you to plead with the Lord, to be honest with the Lord. He can handle your honesty. Plead with him, but then trust him. You know, this is how the scriptures teach us how to pray, how the Psalms teach us how to pray and worship. We can be really honest with the Lord. He can handle your honesty. You can trust him with it all. He already knows what's in your heart. Just tell him. And he can offer you peace there. This is the promise. What's the Lord promised to to his people when we plead with him in prayer? Look at verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what's the promise? For those who plead with him in prayer is the peace of God. This peace that surpasses human understanding. Your circumstances may make your anxiety very understandable. Again, what I know many of you are going through, the natural response to these things is anxiety. But the Lord promises to meet you there with his peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that doesn't make sense for the circumstances you're going through right now, you can have in Jesus. A kind of peace that the world doesn't understand and comprehend during this time right now. This is what Jesus promises in John 14. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The world has no idea the kind of peace that Jesus offers. My peace I give to you, he says. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to fear anymore. You can trust me, is Jesus' invitation. Paul promises this peace will do something for you. Did you catch that? The peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul keeps using these military pictures and terms here. Again, I mentioned a large military presence in Philippi. Maybe that's why he's just appealing to the people there, keeps using these military words. 
But here is a picture of someone standing guard on duty. When you are praying, it's as if you have someone there standing on guard on duty to drive anxiety away. When you are praying, you are much less vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, according to Paul here. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One commentator said, prayerful people are peaceful people. Even when your circumstances aren't peaceful, you can have this kind of peace. Trouble is promised by Jesus. You know what Jesus says? In this world, you will have trouble. He promised it. He assured it. But with Jesus, trouble is an opportunity to trust Jesus because Jesus goes on to say, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't promise you a pain-free life if you follow him, but he promises you his peace and his presence. One of the last and sweetest promises that Jesus gives to his disciples is that he will be with them. I will be with you always, he says. By the power of his spirit, he will be with us to the end. Again, I just feel pastorally the need to say this moment, those of you who, again, are struggling with anxiety beyond what I can imagine and what I've experienced, I, I don't want you to wallow in shame over that, but I do want you to learn to look to Jesus and to trust him. And I know Paul has a thorn in his flesh that he continually asks the Lord to take away, but he doesn't. Paul says, so that the Lord's power may be perfected in his weakness that through this struggle that you may have, it's an opportunity for you to learn to trust the Lord all the more. I don't know if I've ever met a Christian who it feels good about their prayer life. But if anxiety is something you consistently struggle with, the Lord is giving you an opportunity, again, to have a consistent alarm clock where you can meet with and commune with the Lord all the more. So don't, don't despise this. But again, let this be an opportunity that you see to look to Jesus consistently. Look outside of yourself. Don't trust yourself and your feelings, but trust the Lord. Paul continues the thought of guarding our hearts and minds in verse eight. Look at verse eight with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do these things that Paul just lists in verse eight, are these the things that characterize your thought life of what goes on in your heart and mind? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? When you don't have something to think about, where does your mind naturally go? If your mind doesn't naturally go to these things that Paul lists in verse eight, what can we do to change that? I think a helpful thing to do is for us to realize what are the thoughts that are consuming us and figure out there's a way that we can not feed those thoughts the wrong things. Begin to take our thoughts captive. An example right now would be, I know politics is on everybody's mind election coming up on Tuesday. Politics is robbing a lot of the Lord's people 
of the Lord's peace right now because it's consuming them in ways that are unhelpful. And my concern is, and what I know to be true is that people are always being discipled. The question is, are you being discipled in the truth? I think one of the reasons why we are where we are right now is because professing Christians have been more discipled by their favorite political talk radio show or news station over the last 30 years than they have by Jesus in his word. And that's on the, both the right and the left. People are being discipled. And what my job is as a Christian, as a pastor, is not to point you like back towards the middle from the political right and left. My job is to point you to Jesus. And Jesus is king long before Kanye said it and long after Kanye's gone. Jesus is king and his kingdom will last forever and his kingdom blows up all of our political categories. But one of the things I think is true is that I think I would probably vote the way you're gonna vote on Tuesday if I consume the same things that you consume. If I consume the same media that you consume, we would probably vote alike. But again, the question for us and what we need to make sure of is that we are consuming things as Christians that are renewing our minds according to the word of God so we can help discern what the will of God is. That we can't, won't be conformed into the image of this world. Be conformed into the image of Christ. And we can be active in training our mind to focus on the things of verse 8 by, again, setting our minds on things above, on the scriptures. It's hard to have the peace that the Lord promises if we are focusing on the opposite things of verse 8. If instead of what's true, we're focusing on lies, if instead of what's pure, we're focusing on what's impure. But instead, let's look to Jesus, who is the ultimate manifestation of what's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. This is who Jesus is personified. And where we meet him is in his word. Again, there are common graces where we can see truth and beauty in art and literature and in the natural world, but these things are just shadows. Jesus is the substance of these things. So set your mind on him and not on the things of this world. And may the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace as we fix our eyes on Jesus, brothers and sisters. Let's look at verse nine and finish here together. Paul once again sets himself up as an example to follow. And it matters who we follow, brothers and sisters. It matters who we're imitating. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace, there it is again, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says to practice these things. Or as James says, don't just be hearers of the word but doers. Or as my high school basketball coach would say, don't just talk about it, be about it. Practice these things, Paul says. 
We get peace by practicing what he has called us to, by practicing prayer and thanksgiving and looking to Jesus, training ourselves to look away from ourselves. Let our anxieties drive us to prayer. Let us find things to be thankful and grateful for and express those to the Lord, to look to him and not to ourselves. We get peace by practice. But there's also good news that Jesus has purchased peace for us on the cross. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 14. He says, for he himself, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. There's a lot of peace talks going on here. And hear me, peace will never ultimately come through American politics. I can promise you that. This kind of peace can only be brought about the Prince of Peace, who we meet in Isaiah 9, the Messiah, the one whom the government is going to be on his shoulders and of his rule and reign, there will be no end. His kingdom is coming. America will pass away. America is an experiment, but Jesus' kingdom is a certainty. It will last forever. If you want to have his peace, you must look to him in faith. You must trust him with your anxieties, with all of your cares. You must cast those to him. Jesus died for this peace. Through Jesus' resurrection, he's assured us that we will have eternal, lasting peace with him in his kingdom. When Jesus first comes into the presence of his disciples after his resurrection, remember where they are? They're anxious, they're fearful, they're hiding behind a locked door. And Jesus appears to them. You know, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, it's peace. Peace be to you. Again, Jesus does not offer peace the way the world offers. He is a peace that surpasses all understanding, that can be yours today if you look away from yourself and look to him in faith. This table that we are going to turn our attention to now is a table of peace, again, that Jesus has purchased our peace with God so we can come to Jesus' table. He's purchased our peace with one another so we don't come to this table by ourselves. We come as a family who's been unified. No matter what the world tells us should divide us, Ethnically, economically, politically, we come as one family to Jesus' table because he has purchased our peace together. This is what we're reminded of as we eat and drink. So would you take this cup if you are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus? Will you take this cup and tear off the top and take this wafer And be reminded of Jesus. Again, the eternal son who took on flesh, who came into this broken and backwards world. 
who knows what it's like to suffer, to be tempted towards anxiety, but it's overcome. It's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet without sin, and has died on the cross, having his body broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. He says, whoever eats of this bread through faith will live forever. Let's eat together and remember that. Jesus also took the cup when he was in the upper room with his disciples before he went to the cross and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. No matter how much your anxiety has led you towards sin, no matter how much your anxiety has led you towards coping with all other kinds of sin, the promise of the scriptures, if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Through the blood of Jesus, we can be made clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's drink and remember that together. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you because we need you. We thank you that we can cast all of our cares upon you because you have cared for us and you have shown us that you love and care for us by sending your son to live and die for us. If we ever doubt your love and your care, give us eyes to look to Christ, to look to the cross, to look what you have purchased for us there. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw near to your people tonight, that the comforter would comfort those who are struggling, who are overcome with anxiety. The Spirit would teach all of us when we feel anxious to look to you in prayer, to call out, to plead with you, but ultimately to trust you. We thank you that one day all of our anxieties will be washed away as Jesus has washed away our sins. One day all the things that trouble us will be no more. We long for that day, we look forward to that day. But until that day, help us to trust in you all the more, help us to be a faithful witness to the world of the kind of peace that, the, that Jesus offers that the world does not know. Help us to look to the Prince of Peace in faith tonight and worship him now in response to his word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.